1: Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Stringfield. Jonathan is uh, the VP of Global Business Research and Marketing at Activision Blizzard, a great, great company who we've been lucky enough to partner with for years. Before we started uh, here, Jonathan and I were talking about our mutual pal, the great Greg Carroll, uh, who we know forever and love at Activision Blizzard. We're going to talk about the new book, Get in the Game, Uh, and am really thrilled to have you. So welcome, Jonathan.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Really excited to have the convo.
1: You have roots in one of my favorite cities, Chicago, Illinois, Mm -hmm. and have achieved at a really high level, uh, academically, uh, and have credentials. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because I think it's relevant to, you know, your career path and certainly what you're doing now in the new book. But you also were a rugby player, and you don't Mm -hmm. always see that mix of people who excel in the high councils of academia and rugby. And to me, it spoke to the grittiness of Chicago and Chicago people. So I'd love to start with your take, Jonathan, on Chicago and grit.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think there's something to be said about taking hits in the head in rugby and then being in academia that it probably hurts as much as it helps to be to be perfectly honest. But, yeah, I mean, it's funny you use the word grit because, you know, throughout my career, that's one of those words that keeps getting ascribed. And I think it's partially from a bit of that Chicago attitude that, you know, it's it's kind of a nice balance between you know when you work in tech you're 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 usually on that balance between New York Madison Avenue marketers advertisers and what have you versus the kind of tech culture on on the on the west coast so being able to be in that little bit of a balance is good but then I think more importantly what I always appreciate and love about the city of Chicago is that they're they're scrappy people right so we we can do a lot with not much resources and again whether you're talking about, tech companies or integration advertising or whatnot, being able to hit that balance has been super, super useful. In addition to just being able to talk to folks like a human, even about fairly complex topics, which is more or less what I do for a
1: living. Absolutely fantastic. So let's go back to um, University of Illinois in Chicago, which is a a great, great school. Mm -hmm. And you got a degree, you know, at the right age and then went back later and get a Ph.D. Talk about the mm-hmm. decision to get there. And what did you want to gain with that Ph.D. that you didn't already have?
0: Yeah, and I mean, what in actuality, what was happening is that, you know, I, I graduated with my baccalaureate, started working you know in the professional sector at the time at Nielsen for measurement science for TV ratings. So again, in terms of working in advertising, and measurement and whatnot, I'm, I'm a lifter. Right. Um, and concurrent with that did my master's and PhD. So I'm actually was the only person in my doctoral program that was working full time while pursuing a PhD, which again, let's go back to being hit in the head and not making smart decisions and whatnot. Like that's that's the the, the thread that's going to be throughout here, right? And you know the background there is that you know I, I didn't realistically have aspirations to remain in the academy. Right. Like I enjoy teaching and I teach now um you know as you know as kind of an adjunct faculty um, but realistically wanted to stay in industry because you know just being able to get things done and move fast and what have you that's that's always what I've really enjoyed about my about my professional work but realistically the skills that I wanted to pick up is that you know what I was seeing and what I was hearing from you know the advertising community the tech companies and what have you is that really thinking through measurement response Research, insights understanding consumer psychology all these things on a much much deeper level so having the skills and the framework to do that level of research really was something that I felt like was going to be one well used at some of the companies that I worked at that obviously transitioned from Facebook to Twitter to now Activision Blizzard throughout and I think having that grounding has kind of been essential in terms of being able to go beyond the superficial because advertisers are getting smarter and the questions are getting harder, and they're, the, the the outlets and the media that we're using is getting more diverse. So really being able to interrogate all of this through an empirical lens in the most serious way possible, like that's, that's what's gonna differentiate the strategies that are good from great.
1: Let's go dial the clock back again. Mm-hmm. You started doing research and looking at insights in the not-for-profit sector, pre-Nielsen. Talk mm-hmm. about that and that road you took Intellectual curiosity, I guess a little bit of hit in the head, but the whole movement, because your career path is really interesting in that you, uh, you know, under scrutiny, you might be the best guy we have or gal we have uh, looking at the business and immersion in the business of measurement. Um, So talk about the path to get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would never give myself that much credit, but, you know, some of that work in terms of nonprofits was was actually there too, concurrent with, at the time, my master's degree and my time of work with Nielsen and, and, and what have you. And much of that, you know, again, from this commonality that regardless of your nonprofit or profit, or to a certain degree, academic versus applied, technology versus marketing or what have you, the fundamentals of what, we, what makes good research, what makes a good project that provides useful data and information to inform decisions is the same. And, and I'm sure there's a bunch of insights practitioners listening out there that'll be like, that's not true. Blah. And again, but at a basic level, right? If you don't formulate your questions, your approach, your methodology, your epistemology, however you wanna look at it in the right way, you're just going to get useless information. And that is one of the, I think, biggest flaws that we tend to find in, again, broader insights, broader research work, broader measurement, is that if you're not starting with the right questions, if you're not starting with the right approach, everything else doesn't matter, right? Which is a long way of saying the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. So being able to look across a multitude of sectors did allow me to kind of understand some of those fundamentals better to make sure that you're not putting garbage in from the get-go. So it's that... Plus, I think the the big thing that really kind of helps me throughout my career is that you know I started and indeed like published in academic you know journals and whatnot and wanted to be a very serious academic demographer, which is a very studious group of folks, super statistical, hardcore mathematics, everything else under the sun. But and I did fine. But what I was good at was again being able to talk to humans about, you know, some of these complex topics and do so in a way that they could kind of understand. And, and that's really becoming what the one of the more valuable skills for researchers and data practitioners and things like that out on market these days. Uh,
1: such an interesting uh, journey that you took in the approach. Let's talk about your tenure at Nielsen. You spent give or take six years there. Mm-hmm. We've worked with Nielsen over the years. They're also a terrific partner that company consistently is getting pasted
0: mm-hmm. by
1: everybody. They're not doing this, there's too much of that. Uh, talk about what that culture there was like. I've always found it to be a tough but fair place. We've worked with their you know leadership teams uh, right through to the present, but Nielsen certainly holds a unique place mm-hmm. in the measurement ecosystem. Any reflections on your tenure at Nielsen, good, bad, or indifferent?
0: i mean it, it was a good experience and you know nielsen gets a lot of criticism in market um, it, some of it deserved some of it by merit of you know no one's ever going to be truly happy with their work right like it, it's it's a company that i have a lot of you know sympathy for given that the incentives are all over the place between national and local broadcasters and advertisers versus market i mean like they, it's one of these things that if you're going to establish yourself as the middleman that also means you're in the middle of a lot of fights um, and when you can't work it out from your opponent, you're going to take a crack at the referee, right? Um, that's essentially what a lot of what happens. But my time there was in um, what was, you know, back in the day called statistical research was then kind of rebranded as, as measurement science in Schaumburg. And, you know, what I will say 100% of their credit is that gold standard applications of survey methodologies, statistical research, projections from there, That's what they did. If you look at survey research textbooks, demography textbooks, stats textbooks, the work that Nielsen does is referenced because again, it's one of the few organizations that has, you know, again, quite a lot of funding because it's a private company relative to the academic sector, but still keeps academic rigor to their work. So what I always kind of bring back to folks is like, sure, it's easy to shoot the messenger, and we love to do that in advertising, we will shoot the messenger as often as humanly possible, because it's fun or what have you. But in this case, like, and again, I'm not saying what they do is perfect, or what have you. But also, I think that broader understanding that, you know, again, they're in a position and let's this now we're talking about the fragmentation of the the media landscape, they're having to build what's an imperfect picture through imperfect sources. But also, that's just the realities of good research. You know, if, if, if there was perfect data to get a perfect answer to everything, I'd be out of a job, um, you wouldn't need me like that or, or everyone else like me, because then it's, it's fairly easy in that regard.
1: Yeah. And the amount of scrutiny, certainly that they're under, uh, it's tough for anybody to stand up under that. there's also been just a huge uptick. I mean, Jonathan jobs like yours 10 years ago, didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So the amount of resource going into the measurement ecosystem, I would think since you started, you know, with Nielsen way back when, you've seen that grow exponentially.
0: Oh, 100%. And I mean, you know, I I often make the joke, which is largely true, that, you know, we were doing big data back then before big data became a term that we were kicking around. And we were doing data science before data science was a term, right? Um, But again, we're not talking about the billions, millions of, you know, records of like a social media company it was like using census data uh, to do projections for you know the demography of television advertising, which is, you know is very important. That's where I worked. I made essentially the denominator for the the television ratings. Doesn't sound sexy, but something very important for for the overall industry. Um, and it, it has been the case, and you know, even in my my time early on at Facebook, you know, trying to find talent that one had serious academic training in terms of how to do research well, particularly the digital sector, which again, way back then was very fledgling, was rare, particularly with that third piece, which was being able to speak to someone about it in a way that they found relatable. Because I met a lot of folks that were extremely gifted in terms of their analytical capability, research acumen or what have you, but couldn't translate anything to an application outside of some, you know, kind of higher order academic question, and that's not going to be useful for folks.
1: So that's a really interesting area, finding talent to work in your sector. That's a a, a real contemporary academic brief, I suppose. And, and I wonder if the schools have kept up with that.
0: Yes and no. I think some programs are doing better than others. And you know, again, back in the days of your, like today it's better, right? Cause I, I think there is like a broader recognition of one analytics as a very hot, you know, pursuit for, for, for young folks, but then two, you're getting that much more diverse individuals that have different POVs from different backgrounds that then allow them to have a more informed way of speaking about it. It's better now back in the day, very difficult. Hmm. And one of our favorite, you know, interview questions at, at Facebook, and I can't take credit for, for coming up with this, but, but I do like the example is that we would ask folks, explain statistical significance to me. Or explain something like what a standard, like something that's like a very kind of like if you've taken stats one one, you can get an answer. Now, two things are gonna happen, right? You're either gonna start quoting formula and that's wrong. Or you're gonna start quoting, you know, kind of like going off on a tangent and speaking about all sorts of abstract things. And that's also not great. Realistically, what we're looking for is you just gotta tell me you're doing better than chance because that's more or less correct, right? So that in my mind, like, you know, again, not to get too corny, but it's like that old saying, if you can't explain something simply, you probably don't understand it, like perfect example. So wanting to find folks that could kind of cut that balance was was realistically the essential make or break that we were looking for.
1: You talk about uh, the predictableness, I'm not going to say this right, of demographic research. Mm-hmm. And that basically, if you have good information coming in, you've got a pretty good chance to look at the outcome. And uh, my first job out of college, I went to Emory and graduated in 1986 and worked for a very famous mayor of New York whose name may ring a bell, Ed Koch. Mm -hmm. And Mayor Koch had something called the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was a blue ribbon strategic plan for the future of New York. big blue ribbon thinkers, Bob McGuire, who was probably the greatest police commissioner of the city ever had, was our crime expert. And Donna Shalala, who became secretary of education under Clinton and president of the University of Miami, was our education on and on and on and on. And one of the chapters I wrote was demographics, did the mm-hmm. research for. I was a policy analyst nice. and you were able then in the early 80s, mid 80s, to be able to know what New York City was going to, going to look like in the year 2000. And this was obviously very early days in terms of the impacts of computer science on mm-hmm. demographic, demographic research. Census data, exactly what mm-hmm. you cited. Today, we've got unbelievable tools, the arsenal that you have in front of you. It, it almost feels to me like you're William Shatner in the Starship, Starship Enterprise and you have command this incredible set of tools to do what you do so brilliantly at Activision Blizzard you've sort of bridged both right talk about where this has come from where it is today and how technology enables your predictiveness predictability I'm not getting it right but you know what I'm trying to say Mm -hmm. to really have incredible accuracy beyond anyone's imagination
0: yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting on something that I think is is kind of a fundamental consideration in any research, analytics, or data work these days, and, and that is, what's the source of your information and what do you do with it, right, to put in the simplest terms. So you look at what is conceivably best in class with decennial census data. So, there's a lot of like census is very challenging, right? And there's a lot of problems with it. There's going to be an undercount, so on and so forth. It's it's always tied to the political landscape. So, of course, the 2010, 2020 census were much more difficult than the ones before. But long and short, you wouldn't have a lot of faith in that. That's the gold standard because you were. I I think under Trump,
1: they didn't count a lot of people on purpose.
0: Indeed. You know, I think that's
1: a very good bet.
0: And 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 again, like the political motivations that the Census Bureau has to navigate are are obviously quite challenging because the downstream ramifications of that data, inclusive of you know Senate seats and representation, and whatnot, are immense. And but from that data, you know, again, it's it's what conceivably can be the largest scale gold standard because they go out and they're counting people, right? So there are folks that go out and knock on doors and whatnot, or we're getting you know mail in or what have you, and like that's fairly accurate now. But what would happen a lot is that you have a census every ten years, and then a big gap of ten years between there, and you need to fill that in with surveys. And when you put into surveys, there's various subtractions that happen, right? So you're going to have survey error and collection errors and all sorts of things and projections that are off and so on and so forth. And so between the two, what you start to understand is that you know no one realistically, particularly in our modern media landscape, has census data quality. We're all working with various levels of error the science of statistics is basically one where it's judging how much error you have. Like That's what it comes down to. So I think even that for folks that are working the landscape now for work in more kind of modern media, whether you're working at you know a gaming company or social media company or what have you, being able to understand where, when, and how there are gonna be abstractions within the data based upon using imperfect data, because we cannot use something like a decennial census becomes super important. And then moreover, being able to contextualize that for stakeholders is just as important because, you know, I think marketers have been trained to put a lot of faith in data, right? And a lot of faith in targeting and a lot of faith in like all of the, you know, kind of new angles that that we're addressing these days. But the recognition of potential flaws in it doesn't always carry through, right? And so to a certain degree, you know, the folks that are, you know, the analytics practitioners or what have you we kind of have to be the bearer of bad news that, you know, I've been saying for years that like, yes, we're getting very enamored with all the very discreet targeting that we're getting from social platforms and whatnot. None of that data is as good as you think it is, right? And that's not me putting a knock at any data provider or any of the social networks or what have you. It's just a fundamental fact of the universe that you're putting a lot of faith in information that's always gonna be flawed. So I think in that light, you know, again, whether you're thinking about, you know, census data to everything in between it's really about you know one the faith that we're putting into it but then two how much do you understand or how much can we contextualize where there's potentially going to be angles that are uncovered because then you're in a world where as you're providing insights or what have you it becomes less about absolutes and more about the amount of error or variability or what have you that we can attribute to statements that we put out there which allows you to be very disciplined in how you speak about it but also isn't quite as satisfying as some folks might want that, you know, we as humans don't do well with ambiguity. Like we want an answer and at a large enough scale with enough data, I can get you a good answer, but I always say there's very little that is impossible, but there's a ton of stuff that's improbable. And it's up to us to kind of figure out where we are
1: between those two. It's such a delicate balance. So let's stay here for a minute because I want to make sure I've got it right. So what we're saying is census, flawed, politicized, problematic. On the other hand, between our mobile devices or everything else that we use and that, you know, is in effect our 11th finger, we're leaving a trail chock full of data. And even there, it's still imperfect, but you can sort of you know, sort of get there, mm-hmm. uh, but will always, by definition, be imperfect. Is that sort of a right take, Jonathan?
0: It is. And, and I think as folks are becoming more cognizant of the digital trails that they're leaving behind, due in, in no small part to various privacy pushes from publishers and whatnot, which, by the way, as from a consumer standpoint, I'm in favor of, then that's going to become that much more of a difficult challenge because you know, again, people are starting to realize that there is a trade-off in terms of the services they use relative to the traces that they leave behind and whether they want to leave those
1: traces there. Sure, sure. I mean, listen, I think very simply, we've all made a trade-off for all the free stuff we get to do. We all just scroll down as fast as we can to get to agree. So whatever we're trying to do, we can move on without having read any of it.
0: 100%.
1: Yeah, Very okay. The
0: human behavior.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about uh, you run at Facebook. You did some great work there for some real marquee companies, sort of early days in many respects in the measurement solutions arena. Uh, companies like McDonald's and Target, who is a great partner of ours. We love the Target people. Walmart, another great partner of ours. Uh, uh, McDonald's, oddly, we had the McDonald's red shoe car in 2004 at the very first advertising week. I think something happened with Ronald McDonald. They don't use him anymore. I don't know what happened. Uh, I
0: have uh, no we're, idea. We're going to have
1: to launch a special Great Minds investigation on that. I think something happened. <laughs> what what but happened to the client? Uh, I, something happened. But let's talk about uh, remembrances of those days and what was then real groundbreaking work to show ROI to some pretty big advertisers on the Facebook platform back then.
0: Yeah, I mean, ROI on digital was more or less, uh, I'm being a little uncharitable, but like a pipe dream back then. Like that was truly the wild west of digital measurement. Like folks, you know, coming from Nielsen, where again, let's remember back, gold standard survey research, the statistical methodology, academically rigorous, the whole nine yards. At that time, folks like myself looked at practitioners of digital research and were like, this is crap. That you're doing because again the digital traces and whatnot were that much worse back than based upon the state of the internet and what have you so like technology like cookies and what have you like some of the things that folks are relying on right now just wasn't like as is kind of ingrained into the, the infrastructure it is now so then you have a, a facebook and all of a sudden you know again the, the the information that you have on users of the platform is just so far beyond anything else that had ever existed in digital period, right? And, and to a certain degree, that's still true today. But again, back then, like early, early Facebook, that was a, a massive shift. So the possibilities that we had in terms of ways that we could investigate ROI was, was you know, I think to a certain degree, it could credibly be called groundbreaking. And, and I think there was this interesting shift that needed to happen is that, you know, all of these, you know, phenomenal companies, phenomenal marketers, you know, kind of initially got trained to use vanity metrics as the proxy for success. Like, you know, I think we're all old enough here to remember the Facebook like, right? And, you know, it still exists, but like back in the days of yore as it pertains to like pages and whatnot, like things that don't even really exist anymore, you know, your Walmarts, your targets, like these giant companies would just really look at how many likes do we have on Facebook as a proxy for success? And it's like, okay, that's meaningful. And we've definitely identified your hand raisers and your best customers, but we need to speak to your not so great customers um, and everyone in between, because then otherwise we're just not doing service to the fundamentals of your business. So it was an interesting approach that we got to work with, you know, some of the best companies in the world to one, help them contextualize a lot of what they're doing on the digital side more generally, but then two, how to take things that were happening in the digital world and translate them to business impact, right? Not how many likes you have, but what is the brand perception shift? How many cases, cans, and bottles of product are we moving? And I think the good news is that for the most part, the better digital properties are kind of moving towards that direction that, you know, the closer that we can get to ground truth, business impact, et cetera, is going to be important. But then I think Facebook was, was interesting for me that, you know, one, obviously kind of ingrained that desire to, and again, something I've carried throughout my entire career, inclusive of my time at Activision, that. We really want to make sure that we are focusing on impact for your business, right? And what we're doing for you at a fundamental level, but then also how to help some of these big companies think about new media, new technology, new platforms that they may not have been accustomed to. So that's a skill that obviously I used a lot at Facebook, used it a lot again at Twitter, and now these days at Activision Blizzard, as it pertains to gaming and esports and all sorts of the and, you know the potential of the metaverse and all sorts of you know fun things that are coming out in that degree, it's the same general conversation in terms of how do we contextualize these things for businesses.
1: Okay, so let's try to unpack that because that's an awfully big enchilada you just went through, and I think uh, would have been against me, but I think I actually followed it all. So we're going to go back to this period where it's about you know, about a decade ago, right? That's what we're talking about. At that time, the concept of digital ROI measurement was a little bit holy grailish. Yeah. You then started to break it apart and actually get stuff done. All of a sudden, there's a whole new world of opportunity in terms of real feedback on the effectiveness of what you're doing, the impact of what you're doing, you then yep. have to figure out how to close the education gap of the people that you're talking to about this so they can understand it. Is that yep. pretty right, Jonathan?
0: 100%. I mean, it, it was all in in, in this, if, if you if we were to sit here and you ask me to get like the, the core kernel of what I do, like what my career is, it is really that education component using an insights lens for businesses. That's fundamentally what it comes down to.
1: And how difficult was it to get the people that were the ultimate recipients of the information, which is all about helping them do their job more effectively, right? Sell more stuff if we're boiling it all down. How tough was it to get them to understand it? Did they under, Did they embrace you and what was happening? Did they fight it? Um, did they get it or did they not get it?
0: I mean, highly variable, right? And, and I think it depended on the, the company, what their analytic capabilities were, and, and everything else in between. Because you know, one thing that we really wanted to do, and I think we were fairly occasionally guilty of, again, particularly early days at, at, at Facebook, and I suspect other tech companies, is that it's easy to kind of walk in there and be like, hey, I'm with this cool tech company, we're all super smart, and we're going to tell you what to do. Which is nonsense, because how dare you speak to McDonald's or a company of that ilk about how they should do their business? I think they probably have a pretty good idea. So there's that fine balance between kind of going in there with that level of arrogance versus, you know, giving a POV in terms of, you know, hey, based upon these activities, these digital channels, this new information that you might not be accustomed to. Here's some, you know, different views that we can look at. How some of these 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 are are tracing out. So, um, what I found is that that type of approach, and again, really in the spirit of partnership and collaboration, what have you, that's what really kind of made the strongest relationships. And then, you know, best in class is when we could have like open dialogues about, you know, data and consumer journeys and all of these things that are very fundamental to to the, the the function of the business. That it then feeds into these broader conversations. There's broader decisions in terms of how to optimize that business, whether it's the digital channel or beyond, because what I think was starting to happen then, increasingly happening now, is that we're looking at digital channels as perhaps being the most indicative of consumer behaviors mm-hmm. relative to things like linear you know, media that we were relying on before, that's now not just in, in you know informing digital investment per se, but realistically, their whole business plan about marketing or outreach or consumer insights or what have you.
1: Yeah, so so interesting. And what it really did was almost brought people that do what you do for a living from sort of the bleachers down into the box seats in terms of how important and central a player. And I know Activision Blizzard uses you this way. I think it speaks to how they view the importance of what you do. That you know, it's a VP global position, and uh, that says, "Hey, this is important to us," because we would have the the network guys. Remember, there was David Poltrack at CBS, and there was Alan—I'm blanking on his last name—who was a real guru for NBC Research and the sports Olympic side. I'll, I'll remember his name. We used to have them speak, and I think they were important to the networks, not beyond there. But the role of what you do has, I think fairly grown in importance tremendously. And I think a lot of the, you know, players, brands, advertisers, the whole ecosystem sort of recognizes that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think when, if you look at, you know, marketer outreach amongst gaming entities in particular, right? So the, the B2B arms of these companies, which again, these are immense companies that are fundamentally B2C businesses, but are obviously orienting towards B2B propositions, whether it's sponsorships or ads or eSports or what or what have you. The fundamental difference that I think Activision Blizzard has relative to a lot of our competition is that I exist. Um, and and again, I'm not speaking about me specifically, but my role exactly to your point. Um, and that was important for even the foundation, how we we're thinking about ads is that we wanted this to be a proposition where we would have that proof along with it. So if you're going to spend, we want to make sure that we will be able to demonstrate ROI for you, and again being a little uncharitable, there are pockets of you know organizations that'll have, you know, some degree of measurement or what have you. but we've made that significant investment in terms of having a team in place that can work with the marketing community one on like the baselines of ROI, which is more or less table stakes these days. but also, again, consistent with what we've been we've been talking about education because again, if you're thinking about, you know, social back in the day, early days at Facebook, like, yeah, no one really understood that. And now everyone's an expert, right? Like we've been around for a decade, we got it. Gaming, same deal, man. Like the, the, the same question that I had 10 years ago at Facebook, I am seeing right now with advertisers, marketers, the broader community on gaming. And it, it's a little bit deja vu to a certain degree, but like, you know, we, we've done the stance before. So it, it's almost refreshing in a certain degree
1: absolutely fascinating. Uh, uh, this is, uh, I, I love this conversation. Okay. So you then go from Facebook where you've got a pretty good gig, but you know, sort of a finite area of responsibility. And you then start a great run at Twitter as head of us research accountable for all their client partnerships and verticals. That's an awfully big gig. And those were sort of halcyon days in many respects for Twitter.
0: I mean, to a certain degree, yes and no. So, I mean, I, I was there at an interesting arc that was there pre-IPO, was there for the IPO and things were, you know, really nice. And then there was like a little bit of that cratering when Dick Costello moved out of, you know, leadership, Jack came back in. And that was a time that was, I think, the first major challenge that the platform hit in terms of, you know, what Wall Street's appraisal of it was, which that's a whole other topic. We can talk about, you know, how Wall Street looks at tech companies. And I have very strong opinions about that um, relative to broader consumer interests and then certainly marketing interest, right? Um, and I, I think what was the secret weapon there, particularly for Twitter, and I think what many of the advertising platforms out there operating in the social space or just as kind of data platforms more generally are that you know, they're kind of held to that Facebook standard, right? Like they want, or now a lot of marketers, somewhat reasonably, but largely unreasonably, want the same capabilities reach and what have you as the Facebook. And that's not going to happen, right? Like there will just not be a platform as scaled as Facebook maybe ever, right? And and, there's a lot of interesting directions that, that that business could go. So what we had to find or what we had to land on was working with advertisers, again, with an emphasis on that capability for humility and working against their problems, understanding their business and being additive to it rather than, you know, kind of trying to override them. But then also, and again, I think this is important for, you know, for Twitter, for the the smaller platforms, certainly for gaming, really focusing on the impact of the impression, right? Like if we can't be as scaled as as a Facebook, we can't get that breadth, then we need to talk about depth. And in doing so and being able to talk about it in a way that is convincing and again, ties back to, you know, the, the fundamental, um, you know, challenges the business has, that's where we found a lot of success. So, um, and I think candidly, that's really what, when, you know, they hit that rough patch, and I'm going to be bad on the years here, but like, you know, right the, the year before I left is when things were, you know, the stock price was down to like $11. Um, There's a lot of turnover, the company, lots and lots of problems there were folks that are working hard to kind of, you know, pull things up. And I think we did a pretty decent job of it. And then, you know, for a long while, outside of more recent circumstances, you know, the businesses, you know, really been kind of doing quite well and much of it coming from that approach of being able to, you know, work with what you have and work with your businesses in a way that's smart and again, informative and additive to what they're trying to do.
1: I, I guess in my simple mind, I think any time for Twitter, but the present, uh our halcyon days so I, I think i think you captured it that's that's not entirely unfair i guess like yeah. we're looking at different degrees at oh this my, point oh my lord uh okay so you then uh go to activision blizzard let's talk about that journey um great company and you go from a u.s remit to a global remit uh mm-hmm. so climbing up the ladder but let's talk about that journey to Activision Blizzard.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, cards on the table. First and foremost, I am a game fan through and through. Been playing video games my entire life. I have done so through my college years. I have done so as an adult. I play them with my kid. I'm passionate about the industry, right? So there's that whole concept of, you know, looking at a company that I admire. I'm a big fan of franchises and so on and so forth. Like, Of course, that's going to get you excited from a personal level. And then from a business level you know, looking at the opportunity that they had, you know, as I was at companies like Facebook and Twitter, I would be keeping tabs on the game industry more generally, again, from a a personal POV that I'm just interested in. And you keep hearing these headlines, right? That, you know, at one point, a couple of years ago, it's like, oh, the gaming industry has surpassed the box office. And everyone's sitting around, they're like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. And then a few years later, the gaming industry has surpassed the music industry. And everyone's kind of sitting around like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Then a few years later, the gaming industry is now bigger than the box office and the music industry combined, and you you see the trajectory of that overall business. And again, someone who works for an entertainment platforms fundamentally, I mean that's Facebook, you know, Twitter and what have you. Fundamentally, working with advertisers and seeing the types of things they want, right? Real authentic engagement, reach, you know, powerful IP and what have you to align with. And I'm sitting at these platforms, and I looked over what's going on in gaming, and kind of going, "What the hell? <laughs> like, like, why is no one paying attention to that? That feels like a bit of a greenfields opportunity." So, as I started to learn a more a bit more about what they were doing, particularly on the advertising side or whatnot, I was like, I, "This this feels like a gimme." Now, upon being in seat and, and seeing you know what the challenges were and what have you, what we found is that you know indeed the opportunity space is certainly there, right? Like when we could sit here and talk about, you know, big impressive stats about the industry in terms of revenue, the number of people who play games across the planet, I think we're getting towards 3 billion or something like that. You can look at the user numbers of these companies, hundreds of millions and what have you. So just, just tons of opportunity space. But that education gap for something like gaming in particular, considerable. I would say above and beyond even social media. Because there's an advantage and disadvantage for the trajectory of gaming that, like, again, let's wind back the clock a little bit. Facebook, Twitter, and what have you, these were all hot platforms that came out, you know, had a few years of being kind of undercover. Then they went IPO and they're exploding and, like, it's all very exciting and whatnot. Video games have been around for 50 or 60 years. So there's something like folks like, oh, seen that, been there, done that, don't care, it's been around forever. That's that geek stuff that we don't really have to contend with. What's shifted in recent years is that one, yes, there had been like advertising opportunities and what have you in gaming for many, many years, but like they weren't really scalable and they just like, they didn't can like align with how marketers wanted to do advertising. Like there's, there was just a lot of challenges with it. That's kind of going away as more things are internet connected and what have you. But then moreover, there's both the, the real r- realization in terms of, you know, where those, the, the player base are going, that it's not just, you know, young men and it's not just, you know, Folks like, and again, we have a joke that if we hear that analogy of like kids playing in the basement, like one more time, the advertising community, like, you know, it's it's one of the most overused tropes, but it's true that advertisers just kind of assume that gaming is just, okay, teenage boys in a basement, when realistically, you know, your average player is 35 years old and kind of like 50-50 between male and female. So we're now at this point where it's like, you know, folks were kind of ignoring that sector for a long time. And now with a better technology, you know, a much more diverse player base by merit of like, hey, folks like me that grew up with gaming my, my entire life and, you know, layer on some of the kind of hype and hyperbole around things like metaverse or, you know, the very future of the Internet being encapsulated in virtual worlds. And all of a sudden people are looking game like, oh, yeah, we should probably start to get a little bit more attuned to that, which, again, much like early days of the social platforms we're kind of out there trying to both instruct folks about these platforms, but then again, connect it to real world outcomes, talk to it, talk to marketers on terms they understand with data and insights and what have you to make sure they understand what the possibilities that there
1: are. So Let's talk about the enormity of the gaming ecosystem. You touched on it larger than this, then it's larger than this plus that. Um, are the brands starting to really embrace and get it as much as they should or do we still have that education gap
0: I think we're we're getting there I think where we are now is that brands understand that there's an opportunity here that they need to understand in fairness to I think some of the reluctance it's not easy right like there's no marketplace to just tap into gaming fans, right? So again, we could sit here and talk about how you know these stats that go out that say there's three billion people that play video games, but you can't go to any given exchange or what have you and reach them all, right? You you got to find pockets of them here or there, and then even when you find the pockets of them, you then have to make sure that you know the proposition you have, the brand you have makes sense in that context because, because again, it's a diverse audience. You have everything from You know, platforms and titles that are largely played by, you know, 35, 39 year old women, and then others that are indeed mostly young men. And, you know, for some brands, sure, you want to reach everyone, but others, less so, right? You want to be a little bit more targeted. So to do that well, you need to understand the space, right? And then it gets very complicated to a certain degree. You talk about mobile versus console versus PC versus esports versus streaming versus Twitch versus all these different angles that are coming into it. And again, rightly so, I think advertisers and marketers and business decision makers more broadly, like it, it's kind of a confusing space. So, you know, one, it's certainly something that, you know, as we, as I've developed my team and what have you, we, you know, me as someone who started in a research bracket, background, we looped in communications, we looped in marketing, we looped in a lot of other functions to fall into that because we needed all of that aligned to help with that education gap to help with folks understanding both what the proposition is and how to integrate successfully. And then also kind of led to the point of, you know, me taking a look at the landscape, seeing what was out there, seeing what, you know, fundamental training or knowledge bases we had and not finding a lot out there and saying, okay, we need some foundational knowledge. I'm gonna write a book about this. And I'm gonna try to start to set like that baseline in terms of like, let's get that foundation in place such that we can understand what's table stakes what the baseline opportunities are great all
1: right so you just teed us up brilliantly to talk about getting the game Mm -hmm. but before we do that i think your dander was up a few minutes ago when we talked about wall street and you said Mm -hmm. i have clear views let's give you the floor for uh, a minute or two to share those views because it's something clearly that has struck a nerve with you
0: I mean, look, I mean, it's it, like anything else, it's, you know, I, you're trying to understand something that's very complex with imperfect information, right? Like that's, that's kind of one of the themes of, you know, what I do and I think just the general realities of life. And I think the, I probably the single biggest qualm I would have is that not entirely unlike marketers of looking at Facebook to set the standard, Wall Street has done the same. And I get it to a certain degree that it's like, unless a platform has a billion users or whatnot and is growing 50% year over year, I mean, just like, you know, outrageous potential stats like, oh, well, okay, then this isn't viable. And we know that's not true, right? So that, that's just one of these things where I get that you have to make a lot of decisions across a broad industry, you know, with limited information, but also very quickly. But I think where we are at in the broader technology landscape, particularly as it pertains to marketing, but then even adjacent ones, whether it be, you know, gaming or other entertainment sectors or what's going on with Netflix or what have you, if you're looking at something like a Facebook as a standard, it's incorrect because there will be not be another Facebook and also there doesn't necessarily need to be and also it doesn't matter. Like different platforms, whether it be a Snap or Pinterest or a Twitter or what have you, are going to be good at different things that's a lot of nuance which again if you're a trader if you're someone who's got to move fast move fast with money then you don't really have the luxury to you know appreciate all those nuances but you know to say that i think many of these technology companies are kind of getting an appraisal that isn't always lined up with the realities like that's the obvious piece but then i think it's also a little bit of a you know call to arms in the marketing community that let's also not fall into that trap because we do have a little bit more time to understand these nuances and all of these platforms have many users that are engaging it with unique ways, and really understanding how they do so, and the background psychology, and how this fits into their lives, and they're seeing those very human factors. That's a lot more important than just kind of you know potential appraisals on okay, they just got a ton of users, and therefore that's valuable. That's that's what we're going to grade something on. Right.
1: Very interesting. I think this is uh, warrants a separate uh, second conversation. Uh, such a good area. Uh, but let's talk about the book because it's exciting. It's coming out. Um, give us the origin story of getting the game and what can readers expect and give us the timeline for it as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's something that, as noted, I would be, you know, going out in a professional capacity, talking on panels, you know, at ad week and other organizations and, you know, talking to, you know, really great people out in the industry. And finding that myself and like my colleagues at other gaming companies, other adjacent platforms or what have you, we were all kind of saying the same things. And and to be clear, people found it compelling, right? Like, again, there's a lot of really compelling stats around the gaming industry, but the conversation wasn't moving forward, right? Like we weren't able to engage with folks in a way that it's like, okay, you understand the landscape, you understand the baseline opportunity, let's talk about how to do it. And then, more importantly, let's talk about how to do it well. So, to a certain degree, when folks ask me about, you know, why did I write it, the the, the flippant and you know half joking responses. Well, I was just kind of getting sick of saying the same things over and over. But the more serious answer is that you know we do need a bit of a guidebook that can start to orient folks that there are different ways to think about how people are comporting themselves to gaming as a viewing experience. As a play experience, and again, we I talk about esports and streaming, in addition to baseline gameplay throughout, and also understanding that this is a form of media that's different than the television or social or what have you, because partic- obviously on the gameplay side, you are interacting with it directly. Like that's the fundamental difference of the medium, and what that means then is that the psychology of it, how folks actually think about marketing experiences, what have you, is a little bit different. So it goes beyond like, okay, there's a big opportunity. One, let's figure out where those opportunities are, because again, it's a very large ecosystem with very differential places that, you know, brands can orient themselves, but then importantly, how can we do it well? And how do we start like that whole journey of discovery or that discovery journey in terms of using insights to really understand like how consumers are oriented towards gaming, how it's kind of special and fits in their lives such that we can bring the marketing experiences that are effective for the advertisers, but also fulfilling for the game players and doesn't you know take away from the experience they're trying to get from that. So the genesis of the book then, and you know again, I think the subtitle is something rather long in terms of like, you know up leveling your business with gaming eSports and emerging technology is kind of a nod towards, you know, to make sure that we're covering off on kind of the major angles that brands are looking at for gaming. But then also, is a bit of a heuristic, and again, whether it's metaverse or what have you, in terms of looking at how folks are oriented towards interactive media going forward, right? Because we need to understand gaming now for the immense opportunity is, but also understanding how consumers are going to be oriented towards immersive and interactive media is just going to be an important skill for all of us to get on board with.
1: Well, you were kind enough to send over an advanced copy, and I got to look at it just a little bit, but. What you've really created, Jonathan, is a manifesto for the ecosystem going forward. And there's a recurring theme to our conversation, which is about closing gaps in education. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's part of what Get in the game does and will do. But this is a really exciting area. I'd love to I'd love to come back and do a part two with you. I think we only scratched the surface on a lot of interesting stuff. I sure hope that we're working with your team uh and ours to get you on stage uh with us here in new york i i think you'll be brilliant uh we can also put you on a uh, bloomberg or cnbc to talk about wall street but we're thrilled to have you talk about uh the intersection of gaming and the whole brand and advertising world where your expertise and uh uh, you know, your your passion really comes through. And I love that you got to work for a company that is really the bellwether company in the space uh, of something that you're personally passionate about. Not, not everyone gets to do that. And that's got to be a real joy for you in a different way and that you can share it with, you know, the next generation, Um, even more, even more fun.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel very lucky in that regard. And, you know, love, you know, certainly, you know, you give me a stage, I'll get, I'll get up there and dance, but you know, yeah, I mean, it comes down to folks, like, I love gaming, I love insights and research, I love the advertising industry, I also don't love parts about it, but I love being able to, like, use some of those insights to connect up some of these things, again, in a way that makes sense for them, And, and and I think there's a real opportunity there.
1: Absolutely terrific, thanks so much for doing this, great to have you on Great Minds.
0: Thanks for having me, it's a lot of fun. chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by snackable ai with the ability to unify all content in one place have ai distill the best insights instantaneously and share them seamlessly businesses on snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before learn more at snackable.ai